great. I welcome all of you today. We're so glad you're here. And we've had a tremendous time of worship already. And now as we look into God's word together, I'm expecting great things. I'm expecting God to move among us, in us, challenge us, deepen us, and uh, change us by his power. If you have a Bible, I would urge you to find the little book we call 2 Timothy. It's in the New Testament, 1 and 2 Timothy. We're going to look today into the one called 2 Timothy. As you're finding that, uh, let me tell you it was written from a prison. In fact, a dungeon called the Mamertine Dungeon in Rome. It's the last letter we have from the Apostle Paul, who wrote at least 13 of the letters we have in our Bible. And he's writing to his young disciple. We don't know exactly how old Timothy was. Some say as old as maybe in his 30s. Others believe younger. But he was pastor of a church in a place called Ephesus. And here's what Paul writes to him. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Radical calling. I begin a brand new series today. I'm calling simply Better Disciples. I hope you know that the mission of this church is to make more and better disciples. And so for the month of August, I want to put the spotlight on that better part. And my overall goal through the series is that we would walk away understanding a lot more clearly what discipleship as Jesus envisioned it. And as the Bible lays it out, is really all about. So to get us started, I wonder what comes to your mind when I use that word, disciple. What images, what emotions does it evoke for you? What ideas come into your mind? Perhaps you think of an ancient cathedral with stained glass where you look and there are disciples with halos around their head, legendary figures etched into stained glass. Does that come to your mind? 
Or perhaps you think of a monk cloistered away in a monastery somewhere, living an austere and ascetic life, a life that can be admired from a distance, but it doesn't seem very relevant or relatable to the kind of lives we live here in this 21st century. But here's what I'm really curious about. Whatever comes to your mind when I say the word, I wonder if when I say the word disciple, if you immediately say, oh, that's me. That's what I am. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, it's so important how we think about this because this is our only job description when you boil it all down. That's why we're here. That's why the church exists. That's why we're still on the planet. Jesus said, as recorded in Matthew 28, just before he ascended, he said, go into all the world and make disciples. He described that, unpacked it a bit, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he Promised he'd be with them to the very end of the age as they did that. But make no mistake, the goal was clear. The mission was laser-focused. Make disciples. Now, before we jump in with both feet to our text today, begin to unpack this a little bit. I want to linger there just a moment because it's so important to me that we understand the singularity of this challenge. Jesus did not say, get decisions. Now, I think decisions are fine. In fact, uh, you might argue that a life of discipleship really begins with some sort of decision, some sort of first step, if you will. But that's not what he said. Nor did he say, go and make members of your church. Now, don't get me wrong. In a world like this, where there's so many choices about what you can join and be a part of and link your life with, the choice to become a covenant member of a local fellowship of like-minded believers who are going in the same direction where you can knit your life with theirs, it is an awesome choice but that's not exactly the same as what we're talking about. Nor did Jesus say, go and get people to pray a little prayer so they've got fire insurance. But make no mistake, I don't expect their lives to change at all. I'm just about getting into peop people into heaven by the skin of their teeth. That's what it's all about. No, no, no. Jesus wasn't thinking here about half-hearted little Christianettes, little spiritually wimpy people with no moral fortitude. When he talked about disciples, I contend that he had something far more radical and revolutionary in mind. And that is our job. And that's what we're going to focus on throughout the month of August. Now, for our case study, I'm going to keep it kind of simple, really. I'm going to focus on what is arguably the most popular, well-known, famous 
discipling relationship in history. That between the Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of Scripture, and his young disciple, Timothy. We're going to learn so much more about that relationship momentarily here. But also, we're going to focus on some of the things that Paul said to Timothy. As I mentioned earlier, he wrote this last letter to Timothy while he was in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome. If you're ever there, I urge you to visit that. You can still see it today and go down in. And Paul wrote two letters, two that we have in our Bible, to Timothy. First Timothy is more about managing the church. Any pastor, any church leader ought to have a good handle on First Timothy. Because it's about how to lead and manage in the church of the living God, as Paul calls it, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Every leader ought to have a handle on that book. But 2 Timothy is about how to manage yourself as a disciple. And I contend that Paul lays out perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible some of the crucial things that are involved in the life of a genuine disciple, what we would call a better disciple, fully committed to Christ. So with that as a foundation, let's dive in now. I want us first to examine Timothy's circumstances. Something really special happened here in the book of Acts as Paul was on a missionary journey. Acts 16, we read, He came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Pause. Timothy is growing up, living there. A young man, might have even been maybe in a teenage years or early 20s at this point. And it says his mother was a Jewess and a believer. So his mom is a Jewish person, and she's become a follower of Jesus as her Messiah, but whose father was a Greek. In other words, his father, there's nothing mentioned here about him being a believer. He was a Gentile, a Greek person, not a Christian. And the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. That is, they spoke well of Timothy. It's interesting, he already was getting a good reputation as being a, somewhat of a leader, someone you could point people to, and he could help them grow in their relationship with Christ, and so on. Paul wanted to take him along, that is, Timothy along, on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, right off the bat, we know a couple of things here about Timothy that I think are important. He grew up in a home that was ethnically and spiritually diverse, as we've seen. His mother, a Christian, Jewish by background and ethnicity. His father, a Gentile Greek, not a believer. We read in verse 5 of our text today, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. So his father's not a believer, his mother is, and now we know that he has a grandmother who's a Christian. Her name is Lois. By the way, I've always felt a sort of strange kinship with Timothy. 
His father was not a believer, neither was mine. His mother was, as was mine. His mother's name was Eunice, so was my mother's name, Eunice. If I only had a grandmother named Lois, we would be soul brothers, let me tell you, but I did not. Now, if you're here today, if you're in a family where maybe one parent is a believer and one is not, you know that can be tricky at best and downright contentious at worst. But I believe the difference makers in this situation, without a doubt, were Lois and Eunice. They sowed gospel seeds in young Timothy's life. In fact, if you have your Bible open there, would you turn a page or two to what we call chapter 3 in 2 Timothy and verse 14. Look at what Paul says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, catch this, because you know those from whom you learned it. And two of those people from whom he learned it were Eunice, his mom, and Lois, his grandmother. And how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What a powerful testimony, but what a difference Christian parents and grandparents can make in the life of a young person. Now, I want to say a word to parents right now, whether you are the lone Christian in your family or whether maybe you're married to another believer and you have children, I want you to hear this loud and clear. The primary responsibility for spiritual formation of your children really falls on you. Oh, I hope you get them involved in our kids' celebration ministry. It is awesome. We are looking to have excellence in our ministries all across the board at every location we have. We're looking to train young people. All, as soon as they're able to learn about Jesus, we want them to learn all they can and fall in love with Jesus, to sing songs about him, to memorize Bible verses about him. It is awesome. I hope you take advantage of that. But it is not kids' celebration responsibility, as awesome as they are, to spiritually nurture your children. It's yours. And I know that can be challenging in a world like this where we are amusing ourselves to death with all kinds of technology and entertainment and it just takes over the home. But however you need to do that, according to your family rhythms and responsibilities and all the realities of your family, however you need to do that, find a way to sow gospel seeds in the lives of your children. Teach them from as early as you possibly can who Jesus is, what he came to do, the nature of his call to discipleship. Every family is going to be a little different, but every family can be a sp sort of spiritual greenhouse for gospel seeds to be sown. Gypsy Smith was a powerful evangelist in the early 20th century. And he was out preaching one day on a circuit, and a woman came to him and said, I feel called to be a missionary, but I have six children at home, and I know it's going to be very difficult for me to be the missionary God's called me to be. And Gypsy Smith's response was classic. He said, that is fantastic. Do you realize that not only has God called you to be a missionary, but he's given you a mission field without having to leave home? 
And if you have children, hear me, you have a mission field right in your home. So whether you're a single Christian parent, like Eunice was, not a single parent, but a single Christian parent, without a father to support the spiritual development of Timothy, do whatever you can to help the formation, the spiritual formation of your children, and grandparents can play a huge role. So grandparents, parents, I hope you'll be encouraged by this. Scripture's pretty clear. It was Lois and Eunice, a grandmother and a loving mom that first sowed the seeds of the gospel in Timothy's life. And I would, would urge you to sow those seeds expecting a harvest. Don't do it with an attitude that, ah, nothing's going to come of this. Oh, the world's such a bad place. I don't know if anything good's ever going to come out of all this stuff I'm doing to try to nurture these kids. Don't have that kind of pessimistic attitude. Expect a harvest. Sow seeds of the gospel and expect that they will germinate and grow into a harvest of salvation in the lives of your children and grandchildren. But now I want us to turn our attention to something of Timothy's conversion. Timothy is first mentioned in Acts 16. We just read the verses a moment ago. That's his first real mention in the Bible. But because this was Paul's second missionary journey, back on his first missionary journey in Acts 14, you see that he came through and it's very likely that that was some sort of important turning point in Timothy's life. Even though Lois and Eunice had sowed the gospel seeds, you know, sometimes God honors the presence and the ministry and the intervention of someone else to actually bring a person across the line, as we say, to make that experience real for a young person to own it and embrace it for themselves. And the circumstances in which Timothy would have been converted on that first visit to Lystra are pretty dramatic. Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 10, and he said, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. Catch this part. What kind of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Paul's saying, Timothy, you know my story. Now, I hope when you go home, you'll read that story of how Paul first met Timothy and Eunice and Lois in Lystra. It doesn't mention them there particularly in that story, but no doubt he did. You can read about that, but I quickly want to tell it to you because I think it's instructive for how Timothy really came to faith and embraced discipleship. Paul and Barnabas, his missionary partner, show up in Lystra, and there's a man there who's been crippled from birth. And through the ministry of Paul, God heals this crippled man. Wow. People's eyes are bugging out. 
You talk about power evangelism. You get God doing a miracle, and many of you have stories like this. You know what a powerful witness that can be to the awesome power and presence of God. Well, that's what happened here in Acts 14 in the town called Lystra. And the man jumps up, and he's walking around, and everybody is going berserk. They don't know what to do with this. They're going bananas. And so they begin to say, the gods have come among us. And they actually gave Barnabas a name, Zeus, one of their gods in the Greek pantheon. They gave Paul a name, Hermes, because he was probably the primary speaker and orator among them. By the way, the word hermeneutics has its root in the word Hermes, ancient Greek god. It's the whole idea of bringing insight out of things or explaining things. And that's what we do in hermeneutics when we come to the Bible. We take the text and we try to parse it out and bring the meaning and insight out of it. That's what hermeneutics is about. And they give them these names, and they're about ready to sacrifice these bulls to them. And they bring out these wreaths and these garlands. They're treating them like gods until finally Paul says, whoa, stop. Stop this nonsense, everybody. We are men just like you. We're only human. And he says, we've come here to share good news with you, to try to get you to turn from these worthless things, sacrificing to gods that don't even exist, and to turn from that to the living God. And boy, you talk about a pendulum swing. Some men about this time showed up from Antioch and Iconium, and they began to say to the people of Lystra, hey, this Barnabas dude, this Paul dude, they are phonies. They've come here to corrupt you. And the crowd believed their testimony, and boy, the pendulum swung. They went from wanting to worship them as gods to wanting to kill them. <laughs> and they tried to kill Paul. As Acts 14 tells the story, they began to pummel him with rocks, began to stone him. Stoning was a brutal way to die. And they finally left Paul lying on the ground in a pool of blood, thinking he was dead. He was with, within a inch of death but later some disciples came around no doubt they prayed no doubt they stood around him tried to do what they could in addition to pray and somehow Paul comes back to life back to strength and instead of fleeing for his life you know what he does he walks back into the mouth of the lion he goes back into the city where he'd just been stoned now, we don't know where he went exactly, but my guess is that he went into the home of Lois and Eunice and Timothy. Now, I like to picture it this way. Imagine Paul walking in. He's got big bruises all over him. One eye is swollen shut. I mean, he looks like death warmed over. He's just been on the brink of death's door. He has big open wounds from these rocks that have cut his flesh. He's bleeding. He's dirty. He walks in and says to young Timothy, hey, young man, you want to be a disciple? Imagine that. <laughs> and Timothy, looking at this broken, bruised disciple, 
and all that he's been through for the name of Christ, he said, yes, I do. So Paul was reminding of it. Remember what I went through in Lystra, Timothy? You were there, buddy. You saw it all. You know how they tried to kill me. Friends, sometimes I wonder how many professing Christians in the Capital District, and indeed how many who may be sitting in a service right now, are fair-weather Christians. Do you know what I mean? As long as the sun is shining and the sky is blue and the grass is green and God is prospering me and I have good health and wholesome relationships, I love being a disciple. This is a good and easy gig. But let times get hard and let me out of my comfort zone and let something begin to fail and suddenly I become angry at God. Where are the believers? My call to you this month is this. Where are the believers who have an adversity quotient that's pretty high? Where are the believers who can stand for Christ even in the midst of adversity? Oh, I love Job. He pretty much lost it all. You got to admit, losing all your kids, losing your business, having your health break, Losing everything that you held precious in this life, even his wife looks at him and says, you're so miserable, you ought to just curse God and die. And yet in the face of that level of human suffering, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart this life. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Where are the Christians like that? some spiritual fiber and fortitude and strength. Job could do that because his commitment to God wasn't based on, it wasn't contingent upon visible, obvious blessings. No, it was deeply rooted in a profound trust in the sovereignty of God. That no matter what God allows me to go through, he's got my back. He's got my back. He's going to bring me through this. And hey, if I die, it's even better. Woo. Oh, where are those Christians? I want Christians like that around me. Not wimpy little spiritual people who thought they were joining a cruise ship and didn't realize they were about to board a battleship. And attack the gates of hell. That's the kind of Christians I want around me. People with an adversity quotient. So, Timothy knew right from the start. He had no illusions about discipleship. Are you kidding me? He thought, that's what I'm getting into. I might be killed. And no doubt, that's why Paul says to him in chapter 1, verse 8, join with me in suffering for the gospel. And that's why Paul says to him in chapter 3, verse 12, in fact, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hey, go to your local Christian bookstore, please, and see if they have that on a cute little plaque. You know, with some flowers around the edge and a nice matting. See if they have that verse, okay? And if they do, please buy it. Put that one up in your house. 
No, that's not a promise <laughs> we're very quick to claim, is it? And I understand why. But that's part of discipleship. So Timothy knew from the start that potholes and bumps in the road don't necessarily mean that I'm on the road. He knew that the Christian life would result in some persecution. Now, it might not be exactly the kinds of persecution and suffering that Paul had, but there will be some. And so when Paul explained in Lystra what conversion really is, and Timothy heard it from Paul, this is what he said to them in a nutshell. Acts 14, verse 15. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Can I tell you the essence of our challenge today? We love the turning from, we don't get crazy excited about the turning to. That's the essence of our discipleship challenge, in America at least. We love the turning from these worthy things. We love the forgiveness of sin where there's now no more condemnation. We love the inner peace that he brings and joy unspeakable and full of glory. We love the goosebumps that come when we're in a great worship service. We love the fellowship that is so comforting and encouraging. We have Christian friends around us. We love all of that stuff. We love the blessings and the freedom that come with genuine salvation. We love the turning from the worthless things. But we don't do quite as well turning to the living God and adding disciplines in our life. Hello? Commitment to the things of God, things that are critical to a healthy, robust, wholesome, flourishing life of a disciple. That's what I'm calling us to in the month of August. I don't want you to miss it. G.K. Chesterton once made a profound statement. The Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. What a description of our day. Now, here's the reason, folks, I'm so passionate about this. Because a weak gospel produces a weak church. And a weak church preaches an even weaker gospel. And an even weaker gospel produces, in effect, an even weaker church. And eventually, it just all fades into oblivion. And people look around and go, well, why don't we just join the Rotary Club or something? What's this all about anyway? There's not much substance here. There's not much meat here. This doesn't seem to be all that meaningful. And yet I tell you, this happens in every generation. You want me to prove it to you? Hey, let's go on a road trip. Let's jump in a bus. Let's go on a road trip. And we're going to visit urban, suburban, and rural areas all, all across this beautiful state of New York, the Empire State. Let's go on a trip. Oh, I could show you in urban areas, church buildings that once vibrated with vibrant spiritual life where communities were dynamic as they preached and lived out the gospel. I can take you to rural areas where there are gorgeous little chapels that once were overflowing. You could not get a seat because the power of God was so dynamic there. I can take you to suburban areas where there are church buildings for once. There was a powerful witness for Christ. What happened? It became weaker 
and weaker, and a weak gospel produces a weaker church, and a weaker church preached an even weaker gospel, and eventually people just said, what's the point? Christian friend, never be ashamed to present the hard claims of the gospel of Jesus. Oh, you'll lose some people, but it'll be the chaff you lose, not the wheat. Jesus never invited anyone to the adventure of discipleship without also leaving the back door open. Rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, I've kept all those commandments, Lord. Good. Jesus looked right to the heart of his issue. He was an idolater. Money was his God. He said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he walked away sad. Can I give you an alternative version of history? Just real quick. You know what the Bible says, right? In that story, it says that Jesus ran after him and said, no, no, you must have misunderstood. You see, it's okay when you follow me, you can do whatever you want with your money. It doesn't really matter. I just thought I'd throw that out there, you see. But we'll make an exception for you. And by the way, let me talk to you today about how you use your time. Oh, you don't want anybody meddling with that. Well, that's okay, too. We can just kind of put that aside and not really focus on it much. What about your sexuality? Oh, you want to do what you want? Okay, well, you know what? Hey, you know, freedom, freedom, freedom. I, I guess we can have a little moral license there. And by the way, I'm about to depart and not too long from now, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to fill all the real believers. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Oh, as long as you can keep your hands in your pockets and nothing weird happens? Okay, we can work that out. But listen, before you go, I can see that you really aren't interested in discipleship. Would you just pray this little prayer with me? Because just in case you get hit by a camel on the way home, at least you'll know where you're going. No! That's not what happened. Nobody comes to Jesus on their own terms. You either come to Jesus on his terms, the living Lord of this universe, who bled for you on the cross and shed precious blood so you could be forgiven and cleansed of sin you come to him on his terms or you do not come at all. Never be afraid to present the hard claims of the gospel. So you know what I think? I think we've got a bunch of subnormal Christian living going on. I really do. I just believe that's a reality that we honestly need to face in our particular culture in the 21st century. There's a lot of subnormal Christian living. Watchman Nee wrote, the average Christian life, this is from a book called The Normal Christian Life. The average Christian life is so subnormal that the normal Christian life appears to be abnormal. And that's precisely what we see in our day. Make no mistake, normal Christian living is a radical call to follow Jesus Christ no matter where it leads you. So, let me ask you, let me ask you, what is the quality of your discipleship? 
If it wasn't unconditional surrender, oh, I know there are always issues. I know that we're all working, I get that. I know, oh my goodness. You know, it wasn't until last month that I personally became perfect. You know what I'm saying? It, I know we've all got issues. Amen, amen, amen. We know we're all imperfect. But if you did not come understanding this is unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ, I'm concerned whether you came to him at all. It is a radical calling. So I tell you, this is going to be an amazing month. And I want you to know today, you can be in church every week, in church every week, and not be walking with Jesus. The church has one job description. Make disciples. It's what we're here for. Anything less than that is fraudulent to Jesus' purposes in his kingdom. We are here to make disciples who inspire others to treasure Jesus above all. Is that you today? Do you treasure Jesus above everything else in this world? Father, I'm expecting great things from you. You are our good and great God. You are the loving Father who's called us with a radical calling. I love the people of Grace Fellowship, Father. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of this church. Thank you for allowing me to just be one of the voices to call us all to true biblical discipleship. May this month be a month of miracles, amazing transformation, deepening, challenging, moving forward in our walk with you. We commit it all to you, Lord, and we thank you for all you're doing and are going to do as we commit ourselves to the radical calling of discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.